Welcome to the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm your host, Corey Graham. Join us here every Friday night at 8 p.m. or listen anytime via podcast at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and PodServe, to name just a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where the independent new authors come first. I'm really thrilled to welcome back to the Reader House Author Roundtable, author Peter Ballone. Peter, thank you for coming back to the show with me. Okay, yes. What a great opportunity. Well, it's great to be talking with you again. The first time we talked, we were going over the rapture theory and what you wrote about that. This time, you wrote A Layman's Challenge to Galatians. It's out in stores right now, so can you tell me all about this one? Well, this one is a little bit heavier than the rapture book, okay? Mm. This delves into the book of Galatians, and there's a pre-setup first, in other words, explaining some context that is germane to the book of Galatians itself. And then it goes through the entire book of Galatians verse by verse and explains misconcepts that are generally put out there in regards to Paul, the Apostle Paul, having taken the Galatian Christian converts away from the so-called law of Moses. That's fictitious and also fallacious. So it basically says, no, that is wrong. This is what actually happened. Hmm. Now, Peter, what gave you the idea to write this? What sparked the idea to take Galatians on like this? Well, I have seen many people who were using this false idea, falling back on this false idea, and using it as a basis of truth. And they would say, well, you know, according to this, And the biggest thing that they use is, I believe it's in Galatians chapter 6 and maybe chapter 5, where Paul says to the Galatian converts, don't let anybody abuse you. I'm going to use the word abuse in regards to a Sabbath or to a holy day or a new moon. And so they immediately, those who want to use that as a distractor, then say, well, see, Paul is saying that only the Jews then do new moons and Sabbaths and everything else. So therefore, he must be doing away with the law of Moses. Hmm. And yet, what they're not understanding is that the pagans had new moons, had their form of Sabbaths and their traditions. And that is what Paul is basically talking about in regards to the Gnostics and the aesthetics that were trying to influence the Galatian converts at that time. Hmm. Also to talk about, there were a number of Jewish Christians who are trying to convince the Galatian converts to become circumcised. And Paul was saying to them, no, do not become circumcised because they did not fall under the requirements of the Abrahamic covenant. Hmm. In other words, they were not descendants of Abraham, therefore they were not to be circumcised. So 
Paul was following the law, but there are those people who see Paul as, because he was telling them not to be circumcised, they were saying that Paul was taking the converts away from the law of Moses. And this idea of the law of Moses is surreptitious. What they were saying is, is that God didn't give the law to Israel, but Moses did because Moses was an old man who needed to make sure everybody, you know, went by his law. So there's a lot of things going on in the book of Galatians that people, and I would say mainstream Christianity, this is the people I'm talking to, who don't understand Galatians and are being taught false information. Hmm. I encourage my listeners to check this book out. It's titled, A Layman's Challenge to Galatians. It's written by Peter Ballone, and it's published by Christian Faith Publishing. You can get this everywhere, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, iTunes, traditional brick-and-mortar stores, everywhere you shop for books. Peter, thank you again for stopping by the show. I enjoyed our time again and can't wait for the next time. <laughs> we'll be seeing you again, that's for sure, buddy. The book I have here is about healing after brokenness. It's called Loving Me For Me. It's written by LaShonda Lachelle, and I'm very happy that LaShonda is sitting right here with me now at the Reader House Author Roundtable to talk all about it. LaShonda, thank you for joining me tonight. Thank you so much for having me, Corey. Congratulations on having this book in stores now. Can you tell me what readers can expect when they dive into Loving Me For Me? Wow. First of all, thank you. Second, the hope they can find some laughter. They can find original affirmations, a few poems, and a lot of personal experiences that I experienced from as a child through my adulthood, how I handled those situations in the moment that they happened, what I learned as I healed, and how to get through them and not just continue to allow things to pile up on top of those moments. Mm. Well, LaShonda, you've been through so much. I, I can't imagine this was an easy book for you to write. What persuaded you? What lit the spark for you to sit down and write your story and tell it to the world? Oh, wow. Honestly, I tore my Achilles tendon in oh. 2016. Ouch. <laughs> I'm so serious. I tore my Achilles tendon and my girlfriend, my childhood girlfriend, she lived in Indiana and who is now a physician. And, you know, and I was just telling her that I had to have surgery and I was bummed about it. You know, I moved to Ohio. I'm in this place by myself. I moved here for work, of course. And then after six months of work and I tear my Achilles tendon, who does this? She was like, well, because at the time, again, she knew that I had been through a lot emotionally and spiritually, so much to the point to where I was afraid of people. I was afraid of people not accepting me for who I am, you know, because everybody loves you when they first meet you. Mm. But after time goes on, you know, when people really see that you are who you say you are, they tend not, at that point, they didn't like me. So I'm like, well, there has to be something wrong with me, you know? Hmm. And then, of course, with other experiences on top of that. So she was like, okay, well, I'm not just going to let you sit there. I'm going to come and get you. So I told her I just needed her for the first two days after surgery. And then, you know, go home and be with your family, you know? But that didn't happen. She ended up taking me back to Indiana with her. 
And while I was there, I just, one day I was just picked up a pen and some paper, which I hadn't done in a long time. And I just started writing. I just started writing affirmations. It went from there. In January of 2017, a lady that I love so much, she passed away and her daughter called to tell me. And a poem just sparked in my head. It's also in the book. And I sent it to them and told them that if they wanted to use it in the obituary or somewhere along the services that they could. But from that moment, the writing just started with affirmations. And then when I came back home, one day my heart and my head was so full. I was looking for a tablet to write in, but I couldn't find one. And then all of a sudden, just had a thought, open up your laptop. And dude, the stuff just started coming. I, I was there for hours. Oh, wow. And it just kept coming. So I just kept going until it stopped. Then when the day came and you finally got the first copy of this, you got to hold it in your hands and look at it for the first time. What was that like for you, LaShonda? I cried. (laughs) I cried because, you know, my background, we lived in poverty, Mm. but I didn't know it. (laughs) Mm. I didn't know that we were poor, you know. Mm. Because my mom, she, my biological mother, she did everything she could to make sure we had what we needed, you know. After she passed away, things got really hard. So completing things, aside from high school and college, you know, things were just, it was just hard. It was just really, really hard. And I was at a point in my life where I just found myself praying and telling the Lord that I wanted to finish something. I wanted to complete something, you know. Yeah actually have the finished copy of Loving Me For Me in my hands, it was beyond words. Because one of the things I told my God brother, I said, dude, I finished it. And together we cried because he he knew what it meant to me, for me. Hmm. LaShonda, I can tell a lot of readers are going to get quite a lot out of this book. And I encourage my listeners to check this one out. It's called Loving Me For Me. It's written by LaShonda Lachelle, and it's published by Christian Faith Publishing. You can find this everywhere that you shop for your books, like Amazon and Barnes & Noble and iTunes and traditional brick-and-mortar stores. LaShonda, thank you for stopping by the show tonight. I had a really great time talking with you. Likewise, I appreciate you so much. Thank you. It's a book of, quote, 230 carefully crafted poems drawn from the veracity and wisdom of God's Word, end quote. It's titled Poetry of Life from a Biblical Perspective. This is by Kenneth McIntosh, and he's sitting right here with me now to talk all about it. Kenneth, thank you for joining me here tonight. Yes, uh uh-huh. Can you tell me all about your book, Poetry of Life? Yes, I I can tell you anything you want to know about it. Actually, I wrote it. I wrote it over a period of 20 years, mm-hmm. 230 poems, which contain everything pertaining to life and godliness, every reason to give of the hope that is in me, and witnesses to all the truths of the brightest people who ever lived from all generations, like Blaise Pascal and the brilliant man from France, the ever produces invention led to the modern computer and William Shakespeare and the greatest literary genius of all times, and Johann Blaskenbach, the greatest musician that ever lived, and Isaac Newton of the great names, Jonathan Gutenberg, who invented the printing press, John Adams II, and the results have spent uh, 20 years 
writing 230 poems with my book publisher. Mm. It's Portrait of the Time. The name of it, you know, is Portrait of Life from Biblical Perspective. It's very comprehensive. Mm. And Kenneth, have you ever been published before this? No, this is the book up, the first book I've published. Oh, congratulations. What was it like whenever you got to hold the first copy of The Poetry of Life in your hands? Oh, it was exciting. I, mm. I, I was thrilled about it. I, I didn't, when I wrote it, I wasn't thinking I was going to do that, but <laughs> I, I started out giving them copies of the poems, you know, that I'd written to my wife, who was living at that time about two years ago. And she is was a real vivacious, knew, knew a lot of people, and she'd give those poems to other people. Mm. They would encourage her to have it published, you know, and it's a great book, I think. I don't get any credit for myself. It's talking God and mm. him giving me the support. Mm. Kenneth, have you thought about writing another book and publishing more? Well, I, I tell you, I'm getting too old. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's no such thing. <laughs> well, my mind is not, it's not as quick as it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> when you write your poetry, Kenneth, what do you do? Do you have a certain time that you like to write, maybe a certain time of day, or do you write kind of as the ideas come to you? Usually I would uh, get up early in the morning and uh, when my mind was fresh, you know, and writing. And that's about it. I just Somebody gave us a computer back, that was back in 1996. They were talking about poetry made truth more real. And I got to thinking if I could make it more real, you know, I, I feel like I would be doing a credit to God and give all the credit to him and let go from there. <laughs> so that's what I did. Kenneth, a lot of people listening right now are authors who are just starting out. They want to publish their first book. I imagine you've learned a lot along the way of publishing your book. So do you have any advice that you could give these first-time authors? I was motivated by the desire to, to get truths made more real, you know. Mm. And the claim, as I found out, is true. It does make truth more real. And I think if you're motivated by the desire to make more truth more real to people, I think that's a great cause to be motivated to do. Absolutely. The name of this book is Poetry of Life from a Biblical Perspective. It's written by Kenneth McIntosh, and it's published by Christian Faith Publishing. You can find this everywhere, like Amazon and Barnes & Noble, iTunes, and also traditional brick-and-mortar stores. Kenneth, thank you again for stopping by the show and telling me all about Poetry of Life. I hope we can do this again sometime. Okay, thank you. Joining me now here at the Reader House Author Roundtable is author Michelle Lee. Michelle, thank you for joining me tonight. You're very welcome. Just wanted to congratulate you for having a new book out in stores right now. It's called Figgle the Gargoyle. This is a children's mm -hmm. book, correct? Yes. Can you tell me all about it? Well, inspired by the very beginning of the pandemic when even churches were closed down, I decided to write a story in verse that admittedly takes inspiration from The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. Mm. It doesn't have a subtitle, but the subtitle could be The Pathodrones Who Stole Easter. It's about a church and the gargoyles on the church 
who see an enemy coming, and at first they're not successful in defeating the pathodrones, but then Easter comes, and the church gets cleaned, the pathodrones come again, and then those gargoyles reach down deep inside them to find the love that can defeat these evil entities. What sorts of readers did you have in mind? What ages of children do you think would really be into this? I think it'll be a little bit older children, but, you know, the pictures are fun. I think it's written in verse, and that was intentional. Children get used to verse. But I think the subject matter of, you know, defeating an enemy is meant for a little bit of the older ones, you know, say maybe eight to tweens, you know. Hmm. You mentioned the illustrations. I I really love them. This was illustrated by Rebecca Lee. Can you tell me about that? (laughs) She's my daughter. She has training at Syracuse University Hmm. and elsewhere. And I thought she would be the ideal one to do these illustrations because we're in such close contact. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like it was just a special project that a mother and daughter could take on together. Yeah. Have you ever done anything like this before when it comes to writing or publishing? I have not. I'm not a prolific poet, but I have done a few pieces. I think it's important to keep poetry alive because most people look over it, you know, especially for the children. I've never done anything of this like this before to think of a book and putting together a book. Mm. It was a fun project. That's fantastic. Did it take you a long time to put through the whole process? (laughs) That's an interesting question, because it took me about three days to write the verse, and I admit to doing it on my breaks at work. Of course, it took my daughter longer than three days to do the illustration, so it was a pandemic project, like I think many people have, Mm. and she did it as she could, so it's kind of a beginning of the pandemic tone to it, but I think it was well worth waiting for, you know, her to be able to do a good job on the illustrations. And after all that time, after all that hard work, when you got that first copy, you got to hold it in your hands and look at it, what was that moment like for you? Oh, it's like, I did it. I did it. Nobody in my family has, you know, ever published like this. So just to see this project come to completion, it was really like a dream come true. Mm. I'm sure you learned a lot along the way of doing this for the first time. So what advice would you offer to the authors listening right now who are just starting out? Don't be intimidated by the process. You guys are wonderful at at helping every step of the way. There's always a person to talk to and answer you and help you. If you're inspired by something, just do it. Just take that inspiration and, and run with it. Have you given any thought to writing more and publishing more down the road? I have. What inspired the first subject was, you know, just the, the primary question, write about something that you love. Mm. Well, I, I love cathedrals and castles and all of that stuff. And next project, all right, what else do I love? It's about another cathedral, Notre Dame de Paris. And I, as many other people, not just the Frenchmen, were devastated at the fire that happened in 2019. I was looking at the date and I said, it was only 2019. Wow. It just, oh my goodness, I was crying that day watching the news. And it's going to be a lighthearted story, not a depressing story. It's in the planning stages. I haven't started it yet. About maybe some church mice who get involved on the day of that disaster. Well, I encourage my listeners to check out this book. It's titled Figgle the Gargoyle. It's written by Michelle Lee, and it's published by Christian Faith Publishing. 
Of course, you can pick this up everywhere that you find your books, like Amazon and Barnes & Noble, iTunes, traditional brick-and-mortar stores, everywhere. Well, Michelle, it's been a pleasure having you on the show here tonight. Thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you so much, Corey. God bless. To hell with the devil. It's time to blow the lid off Lucifer's coffin. That's the name of the new book in stores now by Gary Randall Wallace. And Gary is right here with me now to talk all about it. Gary, thanks for joining me tonight. Glad to be here. Can you tell me all about To Hell with the Devil? What can readers expect? It's a book that I actually, you can go back 45 years when I first got saved. Hmm. During that time, I had a vision. That was a long time ago. God led me through the scriptures. And I want to find scripture truth because there's so many different doctrines, etc. out there. I was able to find the verses that I absolutely, absolute guarantee the subject that I use in the book are absolutely true. And I say that because it is done through Scripture. I can back everything up with Scripture. I have key Scriptures that nail certain subjects dead on, and you can't gainsay it. And so I just want to reveal to the people that this is specifically what God really wants me to do with this book. Explain to people, at least the churches, I don't know why they don't, but God said there's only one God. You can go back to script, dozens of scriptures in the Old Testament New. God says there is no God but me. <laughs> so, you know, he tells Israel, you, you go out, cut down a tree on the forest, you bring it home, you cook your food, warm yourselves, then you make yourself a God and worship it. It can't walk, talk, speak. So that's throughout the whole Old Testament. But still today, just back as when God punished Israel for worshiping false gods, that we're seeing more gods today than they had back in those days. Mm. So God wants to prove, and we need to put God back on the throne. We need to get him glorified in this, especially the times we're living in, because we are living, I'm telling you, it's very possible we could see the day of the Lord come very quickly. So I just want people to be aware that I totally blow away the whole doctrine of Lucifer. It was simply talking about one thing, one time in the Bible, Isaiah 14. Take this proverb against the king of Babylon. Proverb means like a parable. Jesus spake a parable, etc. The parable in the Greek was a fictitious narrative about life concerning morals. Well, proverb is the same thing in the Hebrew. So when you read that 14th chapter, it's in the term that it's metaphorical. That what proverb means. It's a metaphorical language there. So we're talking about Lucifer. It's just a metaphorical name given to King Nebuchadnezzar, because if you read Daniel 4 and Isaiah 14, you're going to see the very same scenario. So I want to give, see this book reach as many people. It's not always going to be accepted, uh, but I'm telling you, it is the truth. I think like Jesus said, I'm a man sent from God, and I tell you the truth, and you want to kill me. So I may not be very popular after this book gets out. But I blow away a lot of a lot of false doctrines, a burning hell. I can destroy that whole doctrine with four verses, which I do in the book. Mm. Gary, were you primarily writing to a church audience then with this book? No, not just a church audience. Anybody that you've got a lot of Luciferians out there. You've got a lot of people that worship false gods. So no, I want to get reach the church and the public. But like I said, let me put it this way: Jesus ministered three and a half years, raised the dead, healed the sick. After that three and a half years. He ended up with 120. So uh, <laughs> there wasn't very many for a guy that was God and raised the dead. You've got mega churches out here now with thousands in it. So at the end of his, his ministry, he only had 120. Well, I spent 45 years on this, and I ended up with a book with only 50 pages. <laughs> but those 50 pages, you cannot put a monetary value on those 
truth that I that I break. And those Christians that read it will see they're going to hear the truth. And anybody else who wants to read it, because they're going to get their eyes opened, it will be very controversial. Like I said, this book just didn't come overnight. I spent 45 years in the scriptures, and I read the Bible every night. Wow. Gary, do you have plans to be writing more then after this? Uh, it all depends. It all depends. I haven't really, re- I'm not a writer, to be honest with you. I did write a screenplay called Nino Cochise, but that's the only writing I've ever done. And the reason I had it, I wanted a, I wanted a big, ugly devil, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. on the cover. Mm-hmm. And these guys at Faith Publishing Company did a fantastic job. And the cover was, and I saw that, I said, perfect. Just what I wanted. I wanted, you know, I didn't want a thick book. I wanted a small book. And I wanted it to attract people, especially young people. You know, they're into Bigfoot, aliens, and all this. Well, here they see this cover, and they say, hey, I might want to check this out. So Mm. that's basically it. The name of the book is To Hell with the Devil. It's time to blow the lid off Lucifer's coffin. This is written by Gary Randall Wallace, and it's published by Christian Faith Publishing. You can find it everywhere that you shop for books like Amazon and Barnes & Noble, iTunes, and traditional brick-and-mortar stores. Gary, thank you again for coming on the show. I had a nice time chatting with you tonight. Thank you. Jason and the Junk Monster. This is the new children's book. It's on store shelves now. It's written by Mutz Marie, which is the pen name of my next guest, Janet, here at the Reader House Author Roundtable. Janet, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Well, it's fantastic. Jason and the Junk Monster, it's out in stores now. Everyone can get it. So can you tell me what it's all about? Well, the story resulted from a family tragedy. I had three children. Aaron was the oldest, and he passed away in the fire, unfortunately. Oh, I'm sorry. And it was so hard for my daughter, who was six, and Jason, who was only two and a half, to come to grips with it. So I kind of slept with him every night afterwards and told this story over and over again because it was Jason's favorite story Mm. (laughs) because, of course, it was his name. (laughs) And then years went by and my daughter kept saying, Mom, why don't you try to publish that book? It's so cute. And I go, yeah, sure. (laughs) (laughs) And here it is, 2022 or 21, I finally got it published. How did it feel when you got to hold the first copy of Jason and the Junk Monster in your hands for the first time? It was exciting. It was like, thank God my daughter pestered me and pestered me. And <laughs> my whole family's a little bit artistic. We all went to work and did the illustrations, and they were edited by Newman Springs, and they did a great job. Hmm. Have you ever done anything like this before when it comes to writing a book or publishing? No, I've thought about it a lot, but that's as far as it went. The kids kind of grew up on a hobby farm, Hmm. so there's so many fun stories, you know, (laughs) that are in my brain. I just got to get them down. (laughs) Yeah, can we expect more of those stories to come out? Have you thought about more books in the future? Absolutely. I started one, and it's called Mrs. Spitzenhalben. And uh, Spitzenhalben is a breed of chickens that we happen to have, along with a lot of other rare breeds, and Mrs. Spitzenhalben picks out her boyfriend. (laughs) and she lays her eggs in the hatch, and she hides them, and we had a terrible time finding them. (laughs) I think a lot of city kids don't realize how baby chicks come around. (laughs) Mm -hmm, Absolutely. (laughs) But it's cute. Janet, were you thinking about an age range of children for this? 
I suppose it would be anywhere from my great nieces who are five and 13. They just absolutely love Jason and the junk monster. (laughs) That's fantastic. Janet, you have some insightful words here. You said, what better gift to give a child than the distraction of an entertaining and sweet story? I totally agree. That's what we've been talking about all along here. Can you go into that? And it's absolutely the truth. (laughs) It took their mind off of their brother. And Jason was two and a half and Aaron was 12. Mm. And he missed him so much. There was a hole in his little heart, Mm. you know. And how do you tell a two and a half year old what dead is? You know, it was extremely hard. (laughs) My pediatrician, who was so close to Aaron, said, Janet, go talk to a therapist about this. I was saying to him, I don't know what to do for Jason. Mm. And he said, we just got a new therapist. Go talk to her about it. So I did. And she said, you know, you can go do the Christian thing, you know, and say he's with Jesus now. But how does a little two and a half year old understand that? Mm. And she says, you know what? Go out and buy three plants or three goldfish and let one die and then explain it to him. He'll, he'll see it. You know, Hmm. so we went and bought three goldfish, kept them in three separate dishes. One didn't get fed very much. (laughs) (laughs) He sacrificed his life for understanding. (laughs) But when I showed it to him, he broke down and just sobbed. But he could finally understand that we weren't hiding him somewhere or sent him away. Right. It was a very tragic time for that little boy. Now he's all grown up and he's a wonderful young man. Well, Janet, thank you for using everything you've gone through here to tell a wonderful story and to help others, you know, deal with a lot of pain in their lives. Yes. The name of the book is Jason and the Junk Monster. It's written by Mutz Marie, and it's published by Newman Springs Publishing. Of course, you can find this everywhere that you shop for your books, like on Amazon and at Barnes & Noble, at iTunes, and at traditional brick-and-mortar stores. Well, Janet, it was great having you on the show. Thank you so much again for stopping by. Awesome. Thank you so much. Next to me now, here at the Reader House Author Roundtable, is author Nathan Ablin. Nathan, thanks for being here tonight. Thank you for having me. It's great you got a new book out in stores right now. It's called The Quest for the Key, A Galactic Guard Adventure. So can you tell me all about the book? Sure. It's a story about a young boy in the galaxy where there's two factions, the Cosmic Regime and the Galactic Guard. Cosmic Regime controls by force, fear, and terror, while the Galactic Guard tries to maintain peace and order. And this boy is unique because he's the only blue-eyed person in the galaxy at this time. Blue-eyed people have been eliminated because of religious beliefs and prior history of trying to have the superior race. Mm. And two blue eyes are not typically genetically correct. Everybody should be brown-eyed, and there's no reason that we should have blue eyes. So they've eliminated blue eyes because of that reason. So here comes a kid that's blue-eyed, the only one they've ever seen in the galaxy for years. And then there's also a prophecy about that ties into the kid and the journey that they take to find out the prophecy. And that will reveal a different origin for mankind than expected from the two current ones between evolution and the creation. Wow, what a story, Nathan. Where did you get the idea for this? It just kind (laughs) of worked itself there. (laughs) You know, I started just researching UFO history and things like that, and it just kind of took its own life. I think that's what happens with most writers. You start one place and it goes all the way to the left or something like that. It just kind of developed itself. Mm. What sorts of readers did you have in mind when you were writing it? I'm a huge sci-fi fan. 
and I always feel that there's never enough sci-fi out there. Hmm. And so I really wanted to create something that people could enjoy, especially like if, you know, because I like movies. I like like Star Wars and Star Trek and shows hmm. like that. And that's kind of how I vision this story, you know, something like that. Hmm. Have you ever done anything like this before, writing or publishing? Nope. This is the first time. <laughs> well, congratulations. It's quite an accomplishment. Did it take you a long time? It took me 14 years to get it done. As I started in 2008 when the economy tanked and I wasn't working and I just sat down one day and just said, well, I got nothing better to do, just create a story. And I started from there and, and then just over time trying to work around work and other times, you know, it just got there finally. Then when the day came, you finally got that first copy in the mail, you got to hold it in your hands. What was going through your mind? I was like, wow, you actually did it. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I think that's the thing with most people is like, you know, they start something and then actually to go all the way to fruition and see it actually done and completed is pretty a big milestone, I think, for people. What's the most rewarding aspect of it now for you now that you're a published author? I think the biggest point is, A, I did something that even my family said I couldn't do because hmm. I'm not a huge book reader. And so for me, it's like, you can't write a book, you don't read books. And I'm <laughs> like, I can write a book, I'll show you. And so I did. A lot of our listeners are aspiring authors. They want to get their first book out there as well. What advice do you have for them? You know, go for it. You know, there's a reader for every book, I believe. And I think that if you really dedicate to it and, you know, set your mind to it, you can do it. You know, I live with a motto, believe it to achieve it. And in fact, I have a bracelet I wear that says that. And I think that's true with anybody. If you really believe you can do it, you can do it. Absolutely. Have you thought about maybe a sequel to this or more books in the future? Yeah, that's why I kind of created the uh, Galactic Guard Adventure, because I want to do more under that series. And I need to do the sequel to this book, which I haven't started yet because I just finished this one. But I have kind of ideas in mind, and so I'm just going to, once I get a chance to sit down and really do something with it, I'm going to go for it again. Hmm. Nathan, one thing all of we authors hate is writer's block. What do you do when that strikes? I think, you, A, you kind of give it a little time. B, you just think about, options and then see do some research you know think about other ways you can develop the story and i think between all that it just kind of comes to itself I'm like oh okay you know it might be sleeping and all of a sudden you get this idea oh hey there's an idea <laughs> you know it just comes to you you know or you find something that you're researching like oh that'd be a cool take or a twist or something like that so i think it just even though you have the writer's block i think sometimes you just a giving it time and b researching you know something will come when you write, Nathan, do you have a certain time or a certain place that you go to write, maybe early in the morning, late at night, at a certain room, or do you just write whenever you feel like the inspiration's there? I write when I have the time, mm. you know, because I work a lot, and, you know, plus I have other family commitments. You know, finding the time is not easy. I think you just have to try to buy out that time. Usually I'll go in my office and just write in there, you know, away from the TV and things like that. But other than that, you know, it's just finding that time. You know, like anybody else in the world we work, we have to support ourselves, so you have to just find that time. Hmm. Well, if you're looking for an exciting sci-fi tale, this is one for you. It's called The Quest for the Key, a Galactic Guard Adventure. It's written by Nathan Ablin, and it's published by Fulton Books. You can pick this up everywhere, of course, like Amazon, Barnes & Noble, iTunes, Google Play, and traditional brick-and-mortar stores. Nathan, thanks again for coming on the show here with me today. I had a nice time chatting. Thank you very much. I just appreciate your time. Love at First Death. It's the new book out in stores now. It's written by Anna M. Liebrand, and she's right here with me now at the Reader House Author Roundtable. Anna, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. 
Congratulations for having Love at First Death published now. So can you tell me what it's all about? I sure can. Actually, this is a combination romance suspense novel. The reason I combined the two was because so many people read romance novels, so many people read just mystery. So I figured, you know, let's, I wanted to combine them and make it so people can't put the book down. Oh, I want to see what happens next. You know, it's a romance, you know, people are falling in love, but there's also a murder going on at the same time. So it basically focuses on a young woman. She was raised by her millionaire father in New York City. Her mother died when she was really little, an only child. And at first, her father doesn't tell her that her mother was murdered. She was actually, because he had actually told her, your mother had an accident. But she later finds out she was murdered when she was all grown up. When Sarah, the young woman, grows up, she loses her father, who she thinks has a heart attack at first. But he also gets murdered. And there is a connection between the two deaths. So they all encourage Sarah to take some time off and go on vacation. And she goes on vacation to Las Vegas. There she meets a young, handsome guy who's actually a stagehand for one of the shows that are performed in Vegas. And they fall instantly in love. But she doesn't realize that the murderer is after her. And he followed her to Vegas. So what happens is... Colin, the guy that ends up falling in love with her, he gets involved with Sarah. But then when she finds out that her life is at risk, she tells Colin, please don't get involved with me because I don't want to see anybody get hurt. I don't want you to risk your life for me. But he he's starting to really love her and he doesn't really care. He just wants to be with her and he'll do anything he can to protect her. It's very interesting. And, it, and like with all murder mysteries, there are twists. As in, in you and everything, when everything is revealed, it all makes sense as to why the murders happened. Mm. I leave the readers like, wow. Like, for example, I had my mm. husband's cousin read it and she she finished the book in two days and she said, I was not expecting that ending. <laughs> and I said, wow. oh, my God. And I said, that's that's exactly what I want people to think when they read this. Mm. So <laughs> yeah, I love the combination of romance and suspense that you're working with here. So can you tell me about what sparked the inspiration for this story? I sure can. In order for me to do that, I have to go back in time. I actually started writing this book back in high school. Hmm. And having grown up on Long Island and living close to the city, one of my passions growing up, and it still is to this day, well, with even with everything going on right now, is going to see Broadway shows hmm. and meeting a lot of the performers. And over the years, I got to know, I got to meet the same people multiple times. And there were two particular people that were my favorites who were at one time married and they're no longer together, but they're still close. But I still stay in touch with them. And I actually asked them if they could be the inspiration for the two people, Colin and Sarah, because mm. they were very happy when they were married. It just didn't work out for whatever reason. And I told them I was writing a book and I said, can I have you guys be the inspiration for these two people? And they said, absolutely. And we want to read it when it's out. <laughs> so, um, that was basically how that started. But like I said, when I wrote it in high school, it was all basically just as with, I guess, with any author, when they first start right, starting out, it, all, it was all brainstorming and just random notes. And then it took me a number of years to finish it with, you know, with, with high school. And then I got married not long after high school. And then back in 2008, I lost my dad. So I didn't complete it as quickly as I had wanted to. So back in 2010, I would say it, it was finished. And that was basically the inspiration for the two characters. And also, and I do like to read myself. I like reading a lot of those kind of books where there's romance and mystery. And I know, in, for example, like Nora Roberts is an author like that. 
sometimes she combines the two genres and I just absolutely love her books. You know, I get a lot of inspiration from that as well. Fans of romance, suspense, mystery, Nora Roberts books will love this book. It's called Love at First Death. It's written by Anna M. Liebrand and it's published by Fulton Books. Of course, you can get this everywhere that you pick up your books like Amazon, Barnes & Noble, iTunes, Google Play, and traditional brick-and-mortar stores. Anna, thanks again for stopping by the show. I had such a nice time talking with you. Thank you. My First 100 Cars is the new book in stores right now by David Gallery, and David is right here with me now to chat about it. David, thanks for joining me tonight. You're welcome. Your book, My First 100 Cars, congratulations on having this out in stores right now. So have you really had more than 100 cars? Oh, yeah. Wow, wow. So tell me about the book. Well, what happened was I, when I realized I had over 100 cars, 107 the last count. Wow. I think I had more since then. But I said, well, that's unusual. So, <laughs> so I, I pitched it to Fulton Books. Oh, I, you know, and they told me, I sent them a, a copy where I wrote. But it was more like a list at the beginning. And they said, no, you got to beef it up. So then I rewrote it again, writing stories with each different cars. They accepted it then. Mm -hmm. What kinds of people did you have in mind, the readers, do you think would be really into this? Car nuts like me. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody loves cars. Anybody that likes the old cars to you know, realize that what I said is some car they had before. Mm -hmm. And some young guy wants, you know, or a girl, and the girls nowadays. And something I've really noticed about the car enthusiast community is the camaraderie that there is. So you tell the stories of so many relationships and people that you've met along the way. Is that primarily from just buying cars, being interested in cars? Yeah, I just love cars. I love, you know, rebuilding engines the first time you crank it up, you know, stuff like that. I used to have garages. I've had five garages. I've had body shops. And I love cars. <laughs> is this a book that took you a long time to write and put through the publishing process? It's a lot of work, more than I thought, especially like editing. I had to re-edit a few times, and they edited it too. I just didn't want to come off like a fifth grader, but a fifth grader hasn't had 100 cars. So, <laughs> And I just thought, you know, there was interesting stories, like the first beginning where my dad showed me my first clutch. You know, oh, wow. And he said, you know, okay, I'm showing this, but that's it. You know, from now on, you change your own clutch. <laughs> I put four clutches, two transmissions, and two universal in that car in one year. Wow. And it was a dog. It was a six-cylinder Chevy. <laughs> I had to back up, grind it, and first pop the clutch just to get the squeal. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, David, would you do it again? What's the chances of writing and publishing more? I'm about writing another book right now. I'm in the beginning of uh, the memoirs of Flower Man Dave. Well, I'm the flower man of Harrison. I give flowers to all the beautiful women in Harrison. I spend about $100 a month on flowers. Wow. Not a bad thing to be doing. Well, it's um, to make girls smile, and I get hugs and kisses and et cetera. I found flowers to be very beneficial. Remember that. Absolutely. I'm writing that one down. <laughs> I'm telling you, brother. <laughs> So what was it like then when you opened up the box that came in the mail and you pulled the first copy of my first 100 cars out and you got to hold it in your hands? What was that like for you? I texted everybody, my family and friends, and showed mm. them pictures, started signing books from the author, mm. which I thought was cool. A lot of people listening to us right now, David, are authors just starting out, want to get their first one out there. Do you have any advice that you could offer them? Well... Don't make a list like I did in the beginning. Make stories to go with whatever you're talking about and make them relatable to other people. You know, the other people that you know, love cars are going to understand 
when I put drop an engine in and just rebuild it, how how the adrenaline flow. That's what another thing I got from cars: adrenaline flow. Mm. And that's when they crank the engine up for the first time, or or you drop an engine in that you you know took out once, blowed up, and drop it in a you know, used engine. Generally, first time you fire that. But I learned a lesson doing that. The first time I did one time, I bought it and the guy said it was good. I dropped in a 55 Ford pickup, put all brand new oil in it, antifreeze, it had all hooked up sauce. And when it wouldn't start, my dad pulled start me. It barely run. I pulled it down. Oh. And it was a piston missing. <laughs> so, I mean, after that, so every time I dropped the engine in, I made sure there's oil in it. But I didn't hook up the sauce. I didn't hook up the radiator. I just made sure it ran before I did all that work. That was a lesson I learned. You can't believe people. I used to work at a junkyard, and people, you say, well, how's the engine? Oh, it's a great engine. You look, and there's a rod sticking out of the block. How could it be a good engine? <laughs> oh, I imagine you've seen all kinds of things. Oh. <laughs> well, this is definitely going to be a great book. I encourage my listeners to check it out. It's titled, My First 100 Cars. How many people you know have had 100 cars? It's written by David Gallery, and it's published by Fulton Books. You can pick this up everywhere you get books like Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and iTunes, Google Play, traditional brick-and-mortar stores, everywhere. Well, David, thanks again for coming by the show. I had a great time talking with you. Great. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Corey. And have a nice day. I'd like to welcome author Michael French to the Reader House Author Roundtable right now. Michael, thank you for joining me here tonight. You're very welcome. Glad to be here. I'm glad to have you. You've got a new book in stores right now. It's titled Honorably Dishonored. So can you tell me what readers can expect with it? Well, they can expect the truth. So also written out in front of the book, read the truth. It's about me going to boot camp, what happened to me in boot camp back in the 72 era, different things like that. Injected me with the wrong serum. I got went in a coma for a couple of weeks. That's part of it right there. Then taking beatings, me and uh, several others for days and days at a time. Hmm. And the drill instructor ordered me to clean the head, which is the bathroom. And my skivvies, the shower, my shower shoes, scrub brush, bucket. And uh, he came in there and uh, he singled me out because I was the only one from Chicago. And he claimed that he was from Chicago. So he singled me out more than the others. He proceeded to kick me in my stomach. And he wanted me to do push-ups in the head then. And then all of a sudden, I felt a horrible pain. And he took a belly club, if you will, and sodomized me. Oh, my gosh. This is uh, some of the stuff that went on in boot camp. I kind of contemplated escaping and running through the swamp land out there because it was Paris Island, South Carolina. I threw out my child regularly. And then someone, someone called him then to the government. And next thing I know, those four drill instructors were gone and four new ones came in. When that happened, we had to stay behind. Eight of us had to stay behind after graduation. That was a week before graduation to testify against us. Sergeant Johnson and the other DIs that did this. They got court-martialed. I don't know exactly what happened to them after that, but I kept this inside of me for years and years and years. Wow. What made you decide to write your story out and release this? Well, after going through so many different jobs and being stressed out and anxiety, you know, when I got in the Marine Corps, I switched to uh, so many different jobs. Music was one of the jobs I did, one of, one of my things I did. Hmm. And then uh, cable work, I saw cable, but I was free then. I didn't have to have, I was a government. I didn't have nobody looking down my throat. Hmm. So I did them jobs pretty well, but still, it was still building, building, stress building. Then I get a call from the IRS 
stating that the commandant and Marine Corps wanted to talk to me, and they weren't allowed to give my information to them, so it was up for me to call them. So I called them, and they said uh, I was in the top 10 of, of the people at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, then, that got toxic water poisoning. So that's on uh, www.marine.mil, M-I-L. You pull that up and look down, you can see what happened there. For 30, for 30 years straight, they were putting benzene, dry cleaning fluid chemicals, and other contaminants into the well 30 years straight, 57 to 87. Lava's in there in the mid-70s when I came back from overseas for two years. And so I guess that's why I got contaminated so much. Wow. Which caused me to have gizotic uh, cetosis, liver, colon problems, all the list goes on. Then I, I tried to battle this here. Then I got classified as a disabled veteran, service-connected. And so that was in Nashville, Tennessee. Then things looked like they were going to go pretty good. I decided to move out west because of the fact that someone told me or heard through the grapevine that out in Arizona, they're working on this contaminated stuff that's in your body. And Obama sent me some letters. He stayed in contact with me, President Obama. And I brought them to Tucson VA and was talking to my urologist because I had blood in my bladder at the time when I would walk. I kept showing him the letters. Finally, he got upset with me, trying to tell him about Obama. And he stood up and I wadded up the letters and uh, screamed in my face real loud, I don't care. I don't care about these letters. Do you know how much it costs for an MRI? I'm thinking, what the heck does this mean? (laughs) You know? So that's kind of the kind of stuff I dealt with through all the time out there. I encourage my listeners to check this book out. It's called Honorably Dishonored. It's written by Michael French, and it's published by Newman Springs Publishing. You can find this everywhere, like Amazon and Barnes & Noble and iTunes and traditional brick-and-mortar stores. Michael, thank you again for coming on the show and talking about Honorably Dishonored. I really had a good time. Well, thank you very much, Corey. You have a good day. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. We hope to see you back here every Friday night at 8 p.m. or listen anytime via podcast at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and PodServe, to name just a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first. 